0: Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to PostWoke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense.
1: Wherever you are in human history and wherever you are on the planet, birth is the primary rite of passage into a culture. So a culture's birth practices are always reflective of the values of that culture and the, what is important to that culture.
0: You just heard the words of Mary Lou Singleton. Mary Lou is a mother, herbalist, midwife, nurse practitioner, and medical freedom activist. Her clinic, Enchanted Family Medicine, provides primary healthcare services to over 2,000 patients in Albuquerque, New Mexico. To learn more about her, please check the show notes. I will be right back with my interview with Mary Lou Singleton, right after this brief word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance, and asking you, no matter what, to please share the link far and wide. And now, let's get back to the show. And we're back, and I'm with Mary Lou Singleton. Mary Lou, welcome to PostWoke. Hi, Mickey, it's so great to be talking with you. Likewise. We've known each other via Facebook for years, and this is long overdue, this conversation. And in fact, you reached out to me with an interest in discussing the biomedical techno-surveillance state and how all human life has become medicalized. And to be more specific, the system of medical totalitarianism and the healthy until proven sick paradigm that we've been forced to live for the past 2.5 years. Now, spoiler alert to the listeners, the medical tyranny that they are trying to impose on us is now, now is largely modeled on our prenatal care and birth practices. And I wanna give Mary Lou as much space as possible to discuss this critical connection. But before we get to that, Mary Lou, I'm wondering, what's it been like for you as a medical freedom activist since March of 2020? For example, your stance on the COVID narrative has surely caused the schism between you and the left you once identified with. And perhaps like me, you find yourself aligned with folks who once appeared as opposition. So how have you navigated all of these developments in the past 2.5 years? Oh,
1: no, I I feel like I'm still um, sorting out everything about the past two and a half years, I, I'm sifting through all the changes in myself and, and my community. Um, you know, one thing is I now have so many wonderful, uh, right-wing fundamentalist Christian friends be- because I'm very, very extroverted and that's who was having parties and potlucks over the last two and a half years. So it's been a, a blessing and also uh, an interesting thing to sort out in myself. Um, it's it's been horrible. I you know I've been practicing as a primary care provider all through COVID, and from the very beginning, it, many things that were being pushed on us didn't make sense to us. You know, at the beginning, I I was cautious. I I was afraid. I bought the narrative at the beginning. I Likewise. Remember a- right? Everyone else was getting this paid vacation at home. And I'm driving to my clinic and thinking, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to die alone on a ventilator. And I just have to get okay with that because that's the only way to move through this tension is to embrace the possibility of that. And then very quickly, things started not making sense, starting with the cloth masking and having taken microbiology on many levels, having been a nurse in the hospital system, going through N95 fittings and understanding airborne precautions, working with patients with, with contagious um, illnesses. I knew from the beginning a piece of cloth over your face was not going to stop viral transmission. And we weren't allowed to talk about it. We, it, it was a, uh, um, almost a criminal offense as, as a medical provider to question the cloth masking. In the state I lived in, we were required to mask outdoors, we were required to mask in the woods, and all we had to have was a piece of cloth over our face. Our our governor even told us we could use a sock, we could make a mask out of a sock. Hmm. And so I started questioning right away, and then when the data from Italy came out showing the age differential of who was dying from COVID, and, and seeing that not a single person under 40 had died, after we had been bombarded with that imagery of, of uh, everyone's in the hospital on a ventilator, Italy is under siege, everyone's dying of COVID, when it was, the wave was over and the data came out and it was clear that this was an illness that almost primarily kills the, the very old and the very sick, I really st- started stepping back from the narrative and looking at why are they terrifying us like this? Why aren't they telling us the truth that we should be protecting the elders, protecting the vulnerable and everyone else going about their life? And, you know, it just got worse from there. Just the, the forced vaccines, the um, probably the most traumatic experiences of my entire career as a medical professional was giving the vaccine, to people with tears running down their face saying, I don't want to do it, but I have to do it to keep my job and not having to participate in that where they're, you know, my my patients were saying they'd rather I give it to them because I love them than go get it at Walgreens. And I I, I still get nauseous thinking about it. What what a horrible, horrible thing to have participated in.
0: Yeah, that sounds horrendous. I didn't I didn't realize that 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 you were you were kind of forced into that situation. Is that something that's still going on? No,
1: I think I think everyone who was in that position now has either taken a stand and and either lost their job or gotten an exemption or capitulated to the um you know the tyranny of it and and been vaccinated against their will. So we're we're not under that pressure in the same way. Um, I did, st- I, I'm very pro-choice on vaccination, but I don't feel like people were given a true choice with this, this was coercion, which literally violates the Nuremberg Code. You know, I, I would sit with people and try to explain history and say, you know, the, the Holocaust happened and, and we had these Nuremberg trials and it was the very first international human rights tribunal in the history of the world. And they came up with this code of ethics And what did they come up with? Was it, you know, did they say, don't be rounding people up and gassing them and calling it a shower? No, don't don't be making people dig their own grave and shooting them in the back. No, the Nuremberg Code is all about forced and coerced medical care. The, The entire Nuremberg Code is no forced or coerced medical care. And here we were violating it every day. And it was liberals and progressives who were cheering it on. It was it was very distressing.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it, one one um, shining light was that very recently I, I read uh, Dr. Merrill Nash reported that as of now only seven percent of Americans have taken the fourth shot, i.e. the second booster. And at this point, you settle for any good news where you can get it, because obviously a whole lot took the the first and second. But 7% indicates to me that while people aren't necessarily being radicalized, they're just simply... Looking at common sense like this, I am not getting any more shots. And um, I mean, because it's almost statistically seven percent is practically nothing. So let's hope that this is a direction that they're going to continue heading in. Which is a nice segue for me to go into the healthy until proven sick, sick paradigm that you've been talking about. Uh, how how the the um, the manufacturing and marketing of medical diagnosis and that this is. This is your writing to me, the way people, especially our youth, are being encouraged to formulate their identities around the idea that they are sick or disordered. So could you please elaborate on that?
1: Yes, this is a really distressing trend that I'm seeing on a daily basis in my practice, that our youth are... are- almost hungry for a diagnosis, a medical diagnosis to explain their distress and explain their what used to be called angst, which, you know, in our generation, Kind of understood that that the we we would talk about the human condition, right? Mm-hmm. That we we're all here, like the existentialists would talk about. We're you know we're all uh, alone. None of us are given a rule book. We we all have distress, and then we express that in individual ways, and we eventually find meaning in our lives and move past that phase of development. And what I see right now is the what I consider very predatory medical pharmaceutical complex marketing illness identities to our youth that uh, that turn that distress into an illness identity and then they often have medications often psych medications if, to to treat it to keep these you know to convince our youth that this is a permanent phase there's something wrong with your brain chemistry you are unique in your distress and it is a medical condition and here is the treatment for it never a cure for it you notice it's always a, a lifelong treatment it never makes it better or resolves it or makes it go away we still have things like antibiotics that that are curative within western medicine but the vast majority of our treatments and especially the things that are marketed very heavily through our media streams are uh are not curative they the condition remains intact and you have to take this this pharmaceutical for it for the rest of your life so i'm watching this more and more in the youth and they they get upset if you if you try to offer a different paradigm that healing is possible that that distress is a normal part of the human condition that your distress has meaning and let's let's delve into that and and understand it and move on toward a place of healing of that, there is a pushback that that's almost a thought crime these days to mm. rob someone of their identity.
0: Yeah, the, the phrase that jumped out of there when you said how the, the younger generation is being told that when they feel a certain way, that they are unique in their distress. And I'd like to believe, and I, I feel like I'm old enough to have witnessed this, that when people met, face to face and spent quality time more often, far more often than we do now, that was never the case. And it was more clearly understood that this human condition was a thing and that that you, what you were going through, you weren't alone. There was this solace of that. We all have this angst. We, we all have these moments. Of course, there's variations on the theme for each personality. And today I I interviewed on the show, um, Bruce Levine, a psychologist who has written quite critically of psychiatry. He's great. Yeah. And he's, and he's talked about a lot of this stuff where these diagnoses, um, are practically essentially made up. And mm-hmm. and and so flexible that they can change with the shifting tides of of our culture. And so I'm really glad you brought that up. And I can only imagine. Here I'm looking at it theoretically. I'm reading and talking about it. But you're you're having patients come to you in privacy and talking to you about this. And it's I can only imagine how disconcerting and disturbing it is.
1: It is. And as you know, because of now the. Um, the pressure to not speak what's called medical misinformation, which I call heresy. I have to be very careful to meet people where they're at and not be too radical in my approach to, to my patients. And it, it puts medical providers in a place where we're forced to, again, collaborate with the system that is making people sick. It's not healing them. And I do very much worry about our youth because that is who's being captured by this
0: predatory industry on mass. Yeah. And, and as you, as you alluded to that, they, they, their identities, like the, the word identity is so huge for the younger generation, whether you get into the whole gender ish- mm-hmm. issue, but also psychology wise, where they'll, um, there'll be groups online meeting on TikTok or something with dissociative disorders, and that's their identity. And they, and that's the, the, uh, the locus of by which they all connect with each other and to tell them that it could be uh, a human a natural human ennui that we all go through would be um, re- rarely really met with with uh, aggression because you're challenging their identity and so much of this identity politics ha- is contributes mightily to the schisms in our culture where people can't even hear you unless you first, validate what their perception of their identity is
1: right and it's all part of the atomization and the fracturing of community and the fracturing of us as as being able to relate to each other as as humans having a human condition instead we have to acknowledge how everybody is different and special and unique and it is like a divine paradox. We we all are different and special and unique. And also, we all have a collective humanity that we can resonate with. And that's the piece that seems to be disappearing from the culture. And instead, we're just focusing on the identities. And it's very dangerous. I mean, you've mentioned that the transgender industrial complex is, is the perfect example of, of uh, taking that, that distress of being forced to fit into gender stereotypes and medicalizing it and turning a healthy child into a lifelong pharmaceutical dependent who is now sterile and will never have an orgasm in his or her life, that is a particularly horrific example of it. But we can back up a little further and just even look at the number of young people we're turning into amphetamine addicts with mm. the ADHD Diagnosis that people are hungry to grab onto, and um, and yes, like Bruce Levine is saying, like, psychiatry is not objective medicine. It has nothing to do with objective science. There, there are no lab tests to diagnose these these conditions. There there are no physical findings. It's all based on the subjective report and the interviewing skill of of the the subjective report of the patient and the interviewing of the provider. So really anybody could say the right things to a provider and get an ADHD diagnosis or any other psychiatric diagnosis. It's all, it's, it's all just storytelling. It's, it's all, it's all myth, but it is the myth of our culture right now.
0: Yeah. And, and if you feel invested in that identity of being ADHD, you're going, you would push back mightily on everything you just said. So there's, obviously a lot of work to do, which I'm going to now segue into what I've always identified you with, where where <laughs> when we talk about work to do, we can go all the way back, not just to the beginning, but before the beginning of each of these people that, that are having issues, because you've told me how prenatal care is marked by the, what you call fear-based medical surveillance, which will sound familiar to anyone for the past two and a half years. And so What I'm curious to know from you is what are the connections between what's been going on for two and a half years and what's been going on for a much, much longer for that uh, than that by the medical mafia in terms of um, what tactics have they been using all along to medicalize birth? Right. So wherever
1: you are in human history and wherever you are on the planet, birth is the primary rite of passage into a culture. So, a culture's birth practices are always reflective of the values of that culture and the what is important to that culture. So you could see this anthropologically. And that's true to us now, even though we now are you know very reductionist. we we believe we, in this myth of progress, that now we've evolved past, having rituals that are not scientific and objectively real our birth practices very much are indicative of what our beliefs and values are as a culture and right now our culture values technology we are working on this trans transhumanist trajectory or or, you know some very powerful forces in our culture are trying to take us into that trajectory where we're going to merge with machines. Um, We value authoritarian knowledge and we believe as we saw during COVID that the most important part of living is not dying, right? That Mm -hmm. uh, it's not about the quality of life. It's not about the quality of experience. It's better to lock our elders in in a home and never visit them and only hug them through a plastic sheet, then then um risk them dying of COVID if we're feasting with them and loving on them and and enjoying life with them, right? So so birth reflects this as well. And it's, you know, the medicalization of birth has been going on for quite some time. The, there was a real shift after World War II where birth went from the home and the realm of women's knowledge into the hospital system. So we'll start there though we could you know historically go back further of attempts to control birth by male medicine. But before World War II, most people birthed at home and you had your your female relatives around you. and maybe you had a male doctor, but often you had a midwife there. Both of my parents were born at home they were born in 1929 and 1930. They were not born at home because they were hippies or radicals. It's because everybody where they lived rurally was being born at home. Mm. By the time you got to the 1950s, over 95% of births were happening in the hospital. So we had this, this huge shift where birth left the home and all that magic and mystery of birth was no longer something that was in the realm of the home and it was taken to the sterile hospital environment like you you left the home to go experience that and then you come back with a baby um, and you, you hear that a lot, even to this day, people describe their entry into motherhood as when I brought you home from the hospital, not when, when I gave birth to you, mm. right? So um, it's it creates this separation from the rest of our lives. And then through the 50s and 1960s, um, up through the early 70s, including my own birth, most women were anesthetized, often against their will, and their babies were extracted from them with forceps. And then they woke up and had the baby. And in the 60s and 70s, women were told not to breastfeed. Like there was a real destruction of women's connection to birth that happened. And many women were dissatisfied with that. They were dissatisfied with being being completely separate from the process from giving up all their autonomy. And that's where we see that, you know, the modern home birth movement, the modern midwifery movement rose up in the seventies and people were reclaiming birth and birthing at home again. And, um, most of those women were just one generation away from home birth. So there was still this generational trust of the process and like all, um, human attempts at sovereignty that we've seen in, at least in my lifetime, there was a counter-revolutionary co-optation of that by the system of how do we, how do we pretend we're answering the demands of this movement, asking for birth autonomy, but keep control of, of the process. So then we see the hospital system decides to create like home, like birthing rooms. And then we see the advent of the epidural, which gives women the illusion that they're conscious during birth while they're still having an anesthetized birth. Right. So Mm -hmm. that, that was really fascinating. But, and then we fast forward a bit into the eighties too, where we see constant fetal monitoring and, um, and uh, ultrasound technology. And what I've witnessed in my time as a midwife starting in the early 90s is that birth has become by a biomedical surveillance state. So if a woman now entering, entering the system for her prenatal care and is receiving normal prenatal care in the system, what does that look like? It looks like the very first thing is she comes into the system, and even if she knows when her last menstrual period was, and even if she knows exactly when she conceived her baby because she's only had sex once during the time it, it could have happened for her to be pregnant now, she's not believed. the The authority has moved from the woman to the system, and she has to have a dating ultrasound. We have to. This is standard prenatal care. Everyone must have a dating ultrasound, and. The pregnancy is not real and confirmed until we see it on the computer screen, right? Now the pregnancy is real. So obviously that has implications for what our culture values. And from that moment on, she enters a a system of continual prenatal surveillance where they're looking for problems. So even if she is feeling fine and healthy. The messaging giving to her is, you might be sick, but you don't know you're sick. So we have to do all of these initial prenatal tests um, when you first come in. So you get your dating ultrasound so we know you really are pregnant. Um, we can't trust what you told us. Now we know. And now we're going to collect all this blood and urine to make sure you don't have this sickness and that sickness. And most Americans don't question this. They think, well, that's, that's just being safe, right? Yeah. But the messaging to the woman is you don't know if you are well enough. Only the outside authorities know if if you are sick. And if we don't constantly monitor you, you might kill your baby, right? Your baby might die. Um, And then think of that with COVID of how the testing, the cult of the testing that I feel fine, but I don't wanna kill my grandma, right? So I have to get this testing. I have to go get this testing. And how everyone just accepted that without any questioning of this sick until proven healthy, sick until proven healthy. But you're never actually proven healthy. There's always one more test. So in prenatal care, like you've all right, you've skirted along, you made it, maybe you've been told um you you uh some, something was wrong, but we can deal with that. And then you get to the third trimester or you're getting to the finish line, you're you're in the last. The last three months of your pregnancy, then they start really slamming you with the testing. And um, at 28 weeks, you have to drink a cup of of orange flavored and colored corn syrup. Literally, like you have you have to you have to drink that to see if you're diabetic, right? <laughs> and um, and they make you drink all of this horrific sugar that's colored and flavored. And then they take your blood sugar an hour later. And of course, many, many women can't tolerate drinking a cup of, of corn syrup essentially. So, so many women are told they're diabetic in pregnancy when, when actually they're, they're fine. They can tolerate the food they're eating, but they can't tolerate something that no pregnant woman should ever be instructed to drink. So, and then, uh, more and more testing. At 36 weeks, they uh, had this very degrading ritual of a swab in your vagina and your rectum to see if you are carrying this deadly bacteria, group B strep, which is a normal part of flora for, for many, many women. but. If a woman carries it, there's a one in 200 chance her baby might get an infection from it. And then of those babies who get infected, there's a one in eight chance the baby might die. So there's this very small chance that it might be a problem. So we have to test for it and over 40% of women have it. And then if you have it, you're told, oh, you're going to need constant antibiotics during your your birth because you might kill your baby with this infection you didn't even know you had. Um, So we're giving antibiotics to 199 babies who don't need it to protect the one baby who might get sick. And it just goes, it goes on and on like that of just this constant, you might be sick and not even know it. You might kill someone if we don't surveil you and constantly test you. I know,
0: should I keep going on? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm mesmerized. I'll cut in for a second and just say, both sections of what you talked about, the more philosophical, cultural importance of birthing at home and the rite of passage, and then this um, more technical, methodical information, is it, all of it is news to me. I don't have kids, so it's like I don't, um, I haven't had to know this. So I'm I'm just sitting here taking notes mesmerized. So if there's more to continue, I'm all ears.
1: Right, there's so more through the the prenatal care now is mostly focused on ultrasound technology, and and blood draws, um, and that exacerbated during COVID, where women got, in many cases, no no actual face-to-face well obviously no face-to-face time with their provider even if they were in because we were all masked right so no one's getting face-to-face time but often only had virtual prenatal visits and the only human connection they were getting during their pregnancy was with the ultrasound techs and with the techs who drew their blood so we've, we've lost this element of, of care um, they get ultrasound after ultrasound, and inevitably the ultrasounds find something that is usually not a problem, but it now is made to, to be a problem. And by the time a woman reaches her due date range at the end of her pregnancy, nearly 100% of women planning to birth in the hospital system believe they are sick and. If they if they are not in the hospital system they or their baby will die you know they, they believe there's something wrong with them by the end of this process and if, if you interview if you interview a hundred women who have had normal prenatal and and birth care in our country over 90 of them will tell you if they hadn't been in the hospital they or their baby would have died and and that is by design you know that, like Janet Fraser said when you interviewed her, that the process is designed to break women it's designed to destroy our intuition designed to destroy our inner knowing and make us feel broken and sick and incapable of knowing what's right for our babies so we need the authorities to help us so a woman enters her due date range and um and It used to be, you know, she was at least given a chance to go into labor naturally, though often they found some reason that now we have to induce you. So at this point in in American birth practices, very, very few women are going into labor naturally. This did exacerbate during COVID. They used the excuse of, of we can't just have women walking in off the streets in labor, it's safer COVID wise if we plan every single birth. So in my town, there are are hospitals that now have nearly a 100% induction rate, a a nearly zero rate of women naturally going into labor. So even that's been robbed from us, that mystery and waiting and that that space at the end of the pregnancy where, you know, to, to quote, to quote the bible you know not the time nor the hour right the that 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 very um very surrendered place of this is a process bigger than me and i just have to surrender to it has has been taken from us of so that waiting no one's going into labor naturally go into the hospital. If, if you do go into la- neighbor naturally, you, you immediately present yourself to the authorities for, for supervision and management. But now most women walk in not in labor and are given very harsh chemicals to put the body into labor. And often the body's not ready for labor. So all it does is, is torture the woman and, and the baby. And then often that creates distress in the baby, which leads to a cesarean and the woman feels... Like she's, you know, she failed, um, thank God she was in the hospital, the baby went into distress. If there hadn't been a cesarean, the baby would have died when often the distress was caused by the the forcing of the process that was happening. Um, she is, you walk into the hospital and you're immediately tethered to the bed. You are, um, uh, a woman is given an IV, so she has that, that tether of her mobility. And it's a painful, that's that's painful as, way she's, as well, she's given this pain. And then she is strapped to the bed with a blood pressure cuff on the other arm that doesn't have the IV in it. And then she has uh, two monitor belts. One, they're pink and blue, and one is to monitor when she's having contractions and the other is to monitor the baby's heart rate. So she's got four restraints on her, an IV, a blood pressure cuff, and a fetal monitor and a contraction monitor. Wow. And this is, this is all for her safety, right? This is all for her own good. Now I want to back it up to my birth. What my mother experienced in 1969 was she was strapped to the bed with leather restraints on her wrists. And Why? that that was for her safety, Mickey. That was for her safety. So she didn't go crazy and hit somebody or hurt someone. They were being, you know, she was probably being given some terrible drug like scopolamine that made her a little crazy, but she wouldn't remember the birth. Um, but in my opinion, it's no different. the The restraints just change to suit the culture, right? We are still restraining women to the bed for no medical reason. There is no evidence that constant fetal monitoring improve, improves birth outcomes. But we we do it, we do it to every single woman laboring in the hospital. And there's no evidence that an IV improves uh, improves birth outcomes. And there's no evidence that. There's certainly no reason to have a constant blood pressure cuff on a woman that that's an issue of uh nursing staff shortage um the roboticization of of care in the hospital you can take a blood pressure without having women have to be tethered to a blood pressure cuff none of this is any more medically necessary than the leather restraints were but we our mythology has changed and our belief system has changed where we we believe it's for our own good we believe it creates yes. better outcomes.
0: Yes, I, I. Let me cut in here. I, I was, I was jotting down notes, and I was going to ask you, and I think you already answered the question: Is is there any stati- Are there any statistics or evidence to show um, that all these so-called improvements have done anything positive? And I think you kind of answered that. And I, and I'm sure anyone who's listening, it's it's a Google search away, but it's it's like a sci fi dystopian version of safety
1: yes. and
0: the like when you say there's no evidence that that the iv this iv has any positive benefit it's like there's no evidence that masks or six foot distancing it's it's we've been programmed for so long but unless you've paid really close attention to the modern birthing um mafia so to speak um you wouldn't have seen that that this didn't come out of nowhere with COVID. With this, that they have incredible faith that we're going to take their word at face value. That if they say you need to do this, you need to stay home, wear this mask, do this, we're going to say because we've been pushed around and programmed that way for the longest time at the most fundamental, basic time of anyone's life, birth. And I, I wasn't aware of all these connections, but it certainly fills in so many gaps and so many puzzle pieces as to how people were so accepting in the past two and a half years of what is, from an objective point of view, patent nonsense. And in fact, worse than nonsense, an imposition of control in a place where we should be in control of our own health. And also we're more in touch with our own health. Because the one thing I, you know, like I said, I don't have experience in the birthing um, situation, but I do know people, as you said, who told me, thank heaven I was in the hospital, or I might have died, or the baby might have died, or both. That I've heard countless times. And I can remember about 10 years ago, a very close friend of mine, his wife gave birth, and they put the baby in an incubator and told them all these terrible things that they think were happening. And a very long story short, within a week, it was sort of like, my bad, we were wrong about all of this, you could take the baby home. and I could show you. I'm sure you can imagine what those two went through and the stress, the years it took off of their life that week, just sleeping in the hospital just to find out what their first, what was going on with their first child. But it was just complete um, control of the process and wrong on every single count. Right, exactly. And then that is your rite
1: of passage. That's how you've entered parenting. So we (sighs) look at the culture of safetyism in parenting. Where, you know, I think of my, my own births, I had both of my children at home, I've, I've attended over a thousand home births, and I see on the other end of, of that process where a woman has had this natural rite of passage that I believe is divinely designed to turn you into a mother, um, that women are crackling with their own power, and and you you feel like you could do anything, and you are so much more trusting of life and the intensity of sensation and knowing you can you can be with a process and ride it out. That's going to create a very different mother then a mother who has had this incredibly fear-based process and yes most of the ba- most of the time the fear doesn't end when the baby's out then it's more and more fear tactics and now we have to poke the baby's heel every every hour to make sure the baby's blood sugar is fine that process is designed to turn off that empowerment that nature has wants us to have right no other Mammal would be would put up with being treated this way in birth e- even your house cat would rip your face off if you <laughs> yes If you tried to treat it like this, so we, we were profoundly instinct injured people As we saw with the masking like no no sane no sane elders want to sacrifice all the children so they can wring out some more life right that's that's not normal and no sane parents want to cover their children's faces all the time but we're so instinct injured and i do believe our birth practices are are a huge part of that injury and now we have these fear-based parents which now we see with the the safetyism of parenting and children aren't allowed to Go do the dangerous, rough and tumble things that our generation was allowed to do, and what do we end up with? This, uh, like John Hyde talks about, the you know this incredibly anxious, coddled generation that that are terrified of everything because they're born into terror.
0: Wow, that that is a profound encapsulation of to, as as an answer when people say, "How did we wind up like this?" And you realize we started like this. To some degree, they did their best to make sure we had no choice but to end up like this. But the good news is that we have a choice. And I want to quote you in in our recent uh, exchange where you said, birthing in sovereignty is a powerful act of resistance. Healing birth can heal the earth. So I don't want to end on a negative note. I want to end on a uplifting and, and challenging note to the listeners of what what can people listening to this do in their individual life and then collectively to wake up from this nightmare and actually take steps to reclaim our sovereignty in every possible waste way, but most fundamentally in the entry point, the, pa- the, the rite of passage of, of new humans entering into this realm.
1: Absolutely, I think everyone needs to familiarize themselves with with the natural birth movement. Um, the Free Birth Society has a great podcast. That's a great a great place to listen to, to stories of very empowering births. Those are very radical women who choose to birth with without any authority figures, without midwives. Um, I feel also like supporting independent midwives who attend out of hospital birth is is a great way to promote the sovereignty of humanity. People need to think about birth long before they become, pre- become pregnant or get in a relationship where their partner might become pregnant. This You have to empower yourself around birth before you're in the clutches of that fear industry, ideally. Though I've seen people free themselves from it, even when they're pretty far down the path of, of fear, waking up and realizing this isn't what I want. I want a sovereign experience. It's best to to educate yourself about this long before you're pregnant, um, talk about natural birth, talk about wonderful birth stories. Sh- sh- you know, seed the culture with good birth stories mm. is an important thing we can do. Stories are very important, and we're storytelling creatures. We're we're made of stories. Our culture is is a tapestry of stories woven together. Weave in more positive birth stories into that and believe that we're designed to birth well. Does it always go 100% well? No, but the process works pretty well. We wouldn't have evolved to the point where we had hospitals if women weren't really good at giving birth
0: sure yeah like nothing goes a hundred percent well like if that's the standard which they try to convince us it is like that exactly. that's the the covid time period is one where they they seem to say we can't sacrifice anyone and it's it's if it wasn't so serious it would be downright laughable because it's like you, you don't want to sacrifice like i live in New york and our governor at the time cuomo was giving all these passionate speeches about how no one's gonna die on his watch and i'm like well then what do you want to do give everyone a bulletproof vest and a ten thousand dollars a month and hide them away in a bunker like people die people get sick people get better people have great stories to tell as you said of how they trusted their body and healed and i think if the one thing that jumped out during when you were explaining about the tests was how the medical system as you said in the beginning so strongly values not dying over life and it sounds philosophical but like the advice would be is choose to live choose right. to live instead of just not dying and this the 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 steps the the path forward becomes visible at that point the moment you say i'm going to live with all the ups and downs of what that means
1: right and And I don't want to sound cavalier about perinatal or maternal death. I I honestly believe and the statistics support that for women who start a pregnant, who are healthy when they conceive a pregnancy, home birth is actually safer. It really is. It's Mm -hmm. it's just that. we have terrible birth outcomes. We're the only industrialized country where women are more likely to die in childbirth now than they were 20 years ago. Our perinatal mortality is bad. Like all of this technology isn't improving our outcomes, but even though it's not all about the mortality rate, I, I honestly believe that, that it is safer to leave the process alone and that for healthy women with one head down baby who make it to term who want to experience a natural birth, home is the best place for that to happen. It is the safest place, and it is the holistically ideal place for that rite of passage to unfold in a way that will turn you into an incredibly empowered mother who's not afraid of of the intensity of life.
0: Amen to that. What what a beautiful way to, to begin wrapping up here in the sense that this this philosophical and practical advice that at the beginning you can set this standard for yourself and your children that you are going to make decisions based on your sovereignty not cavalierly as you said and not cowering from authorities whose primary motivation is a blend of control and profit and I I couldn't thank you more enough for everything you just shared because it just it was an ideal blend of looking at the rite of passage of birth from a from a big picture perspective, but then the nuts and bolts of what is happening and is considered quote unquote normal that is almost beyond questioning today, but but breaking news, there it isn't beyond questioning you have that control and you can question and the more people who do as you said will have these stories to share and normalize them within our culture right Mary Lou thank you so so much for for being on the show and sharing your your wisdom it's it's i really i really want to do this again there's so many other topics we could talk about but this it doesn't get more fundamental than this. And I really deeply appreciate you um, having this knowledge and gaining this knowledge and continuing to work to advance, to have even more knowledge, but also being the type of person and the generous soul that you are to share it far and wide. So thank you so much.
1: You're so welcome. Thank you for having me on and thank you for everything you're doing. It's, It's really, it's great to be sharing the planet with you right now.
0: I'll be right back with my story of the week after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z again. I trust you're enjoying this episode. And if so, I would really, really appreciate it if you would become a paid subscriber. For just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you can support this Substack and this podcast. Your help is essential and it's crucial and it's you who keeps this project going and growing. So thank you for listening. Thank you in advance for becoming a paid subscriber and please spread the word. And while you're at it, please check the show notes for a link to a really kick-ass post-woke t-shirt. The sales have been going up People are out there showing off what their favorite podcast is, and now it's time for you to join the team. So once again, thank you in advance, and let's get back to the show. I want to close episode 52 with a short personal story that connects to the basic theme of this episode. It begins by me explaining that I wasn't supposed to be born. After my mother gave birth to my sister, the doctors, in their infinite wisdom, told her that she would never have another child. They couldn't exactly say why, but she was eventually diagnosed with endometriosis, but they were pretty damn certain at the time, in that unique way that doctors tend to be pretty damn certain. My mother ignored such white coat arrogance, and less than two years later, yours truly arrived on the scene. She had to spend nearly all of the nine months of pregnancy in bed, but there I was. Mom called me her miracle baby, and I think this played a role in the amazingly close relationship we always had. I'll give you one example. When I was about four years old, I came down with a mysterious ailment that involved debilitating leg pain, the inability to walk, and an irregular heartbeat. For a while, my pediatrician worried that I might have rheumatic fever. My ever-devout mother prayed nightly for God to spare me and give her the condition instead. And here's the catch. I soon fully recovered to live an active athletic life while my mom, wait for it, came down with rheumatic fever, severe rheumatoid arthritis, and more. These issues hampered her health for the rest of her life. Regardless of how you personally feel about God, prayer, religion, or anything like that, I could tell you there is one thing of which I am 100% certain. My mother meant it with all her heart when she said she would rather suffer for her entire life than to see her son sick. And by any definition, that is divine intervention. So thank you for listening. Please heed the words of the guests we had on the show today, Mary Lou Singleton, to challenge the paradigms that are accepted as normal. And to do that, as always, remember to keep your guard up.